Well, good morning, friends, and good morning to those of you joining us online. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Ken. I'm the Connections Pastor here. Every once in a while, they let me preach, and so uh, today I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, this morning, the title to the message, though, is My Pride, Your Problem, and so we're actually going to be talking about pride, which creates a little bit of anxiousness in me, truth be told. And so I'm going to pray before we dive into this. Would that be all right? Would you join me? Uh, Father, just knowing, uh, just knowing my own bent, knowing how my flesh works, the anxiousness that I carry in my heart at times, the desire to impress people, Lord, um, I pray that you would root out any pride that I might have as I share this message, but I also pray for each one of us to be able to just open our hearts and ears uh, to whatever it is you have for us this morning, God. I pray that uh, we would be able to see ourselves as you see us, um, and that we would grow in love for you and humbleness as we uh, confidently and trustingly follow you, God. So we ask for your guidance today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're continuing our study of uh, Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. But I wanted to ask you this question. Have you ever had to make a statement repeatedly until someone finally got it? If you're a parent at home, probably every day, uh, but as adults, we face the same thing, right? We feel like sometimes we have to repeat something time after time after time until they get it. Well, my wife and I have different uh, food tastes. I like onions, and she does not like onions. And so occasionally we'll go over to somebody's house to have dinner, and they'll ask, do you have any food allergies? Is there anything you don't like? And one of the things she lists is onions. I, however, think that onions sautéed in butter on top of a steak or a hamburger or a thing of, I mean, God wasn't messing around when he created that. <laughs> Amen. I got one. Good. Uh, but because I know she doesn't like onions, frequently when we go out to dinner or we've got the option to have onions, I will say no, and I will tell the people that I'm with I don't want to have onions today because if I do, my wife won't kiss me. <laughs> and she said, Ken, I have never said I wouldn't kiss you. I said I don't like onion breath. And I'm like, but how do I kiss you without breathing? <laughs> but time and time again, she said, I never said I wouldn't kiss you. I just don't like onion breath. And so... Um, it's a goofy story, but in reality, we all have a pride problem, and sometimes my pride prevents me from listening well. Uh, sometimes it shapes the way I think of things. Uh, it manifests itself in embarrassment and in jealousies. Uh, sometimes it creates envy. It can hinder me from learning. Uh, my pride can devalue others. You know, it, it keeps me from being all that God wants me to be, and my pride made me want to alter my wife's words. And so uh, today, before we jump into this passage, I wanted to give you context because there's some things that lead up to this. So in the last chapter or so in Mark 8 and just before that, uh, Jesus had left the area of Galilee and he'd gone north to an area called Caesarea Philippi. And when he got there, 
he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they gave him some responses. And then he turned it and he said, but who do you say I am? And Jesus, or Peter responds, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one that we've been waiting for. And almost immediately thereafter, Jesus says that he is going to be killed and die and three days later rise. And like the disciples don't get it at all. And Peter's like, not on my watch this isn't happening, not while I'm with you. There is no way that this is going to go down. And Jesus' response to Peter is, behind me, get behind me, Satan. Because it was a true temptation, like to not have to go to the cross. It was a temptation that Christ was faced with, because he knew how painful that would be. Well, right after that event, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, just three of the disciples, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where it says that Jesus' clothes became whiter than we could ever bleach him, like he was transfigured into this radiant light, and there was a voice from heaven. God said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then from the Mount of Transfiguration, they head back down the mountain. They get into town. When they get into town, the nine remaining disciples are down there, and there had been a man who showed up with a son that was demon-possessed. And this demon-possessed man asked the disciples to cast the demon out. And he said, I asked them to do this, but they were unable to. So these nine disciples that were remaining couldn't cast this demon out. So Jesus cast the demon out. When they ask him about it, uh, Jesus says, well, this type of demon needs to be cast out with fasting and prayer. And so that's what happened right before we get to what we're going to look at, okay? So I'm going to set the stage with pride today, showing you three different scenes where pride rears its ugly head. So scene one, I titled, What's He Talking About? Scene one, we're going to look at Mark chapter 30, or chapter 9, verse 30. It says, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. I actually want to pause on that sentence because I think it's so important to note that you know, Jesus in his ministry gotten incredibly popular. Everybody wanted to be around him. Everybody wanted to learn from him. They were bringing their sick to him, and it was almost impossible for him to get time alone with his guys. But somehow they had lost the crowds, got away from the crowds, and he was just able to be with his guys And because he wanted to teach them. And I'm guessing each and every one of you have people in your lives that you know what, when we can get together just as family or when I can get together with this person and have a cup of coffee and just discuss life, it is so life-giving. And there's times in our lives where we want to get away from the crowds and just focus on a few. And that's what we see Jesus modeling here. And I think that that's so special that he wanted to do that with his guys. Well, then the passage continues. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask. Isn't that like us? Like when we don't understand something, like we don't want to speak up and raise our hand. Like I don't want to be embarrassed. And so they don't say anything. They're afraid to ask. And for the second time in Mark, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, which would have been a pretty heavy and sobering subject, right? He's talking about the fact that he's going to die and resurrect. But the disciples, they don't get it. And you see, in the 400 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, the Israelite people had had the Syrians attacked, the Egyptians attacked, the Romans attacked. And for 
everybody that was attacking them was coming into their country. Uh, one group desecrated the temple and actually slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple. Uh, multiple groups were trying to bring in uh, pagan religious practices and idol worship. And so in many ways, the Jewish people were being uh, oppressed. And during this season, something happened. There were some Jews that stood up and said, we're not going to stand for this. And that was the beginning of what was called the Maccabean Revolt. And so as the disciples were imagining this coming Messiah, this coming king, they had in their head it would be somebody who was a military leader who would not go to their death but would help Israel return to the prominence that it once experienced and be able to overthrow all of their oppressors. Now, here's the deal in this scene. Our problem in this scene is that pride distorts perception. Our pride distorts perception. The Jewish people and the disciples had a perception of what was going to happen. You know, often we think we know the story. We think we know what to expect. Yet Jesus quite often dismantles our expectations. And our pride frequently resists his message and his ways. Their preconceived ideas prevented them from hearing clearly what Jesus was saying. Just like my thinking my wife won't kiss me if I eat onions was me kind of drawing a conclusion that she never said. Well, at this point, at this point, think about it. The, Jesus, or the disciples have been journeying with Jesus for three years. And I don't know about you, but I might get a little bit frustrated. Like I've been teaching you guys and teaching you guys and teaching you guys and they still don't get it. But what I think is important for us to know, like for those of you that either are on the front end of journeying with Jesus or been journeying with him for a long time, I don't know how many times I say, gosh, I still don't get it. Why is this taking so long? Why is it so hard to figure this out? And yet you'll notice Jesus never gives up on these guys. He never gives up. He keeps teaching them. So now for scene two. Oh, before we jump to scene two, though, so the disciples, they don't get what's going to happen. They don't understand his death and resurrection. And so instead of focusing on that sobering subject, the conversation takes a little bit of a different turn. Scene two is how to be great, how to be great. Uh, Mark chapter nine, uh, verse 33 it says that they came to Capernaum. I would just want to pause there because Capernaum was a really important city in the ministry of Jesus. Those three years he spent, much of it was coming and going from Capernaum. Uh, it was a fishing village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee on the north shore. And it was where they had done much of their ministry. Jesus had taught there. Uh, Jesus had healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. There's a good chance that that was where Peter's home was and that his wife lived. And so when they come back to Capernaum, this is going to be the very last time Jesus sets feet in Capernaum before he'll go to his cross. So this is the last time he'll be with these people he loves in this place that he cares for. And so the verse continues, verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. They're having this discussion about who's the greatest. So they get settled into the house, which may very well have been Peter's home. And Jesus asked the question, what are you arguing about? I, I think it's interesting. He didn't say, I heard you arguing on the road. What are you thinking? He said, what are you arguing about? Like he was this master at asking questions to get people to think and get people to process things. 
And yet they don't say a thing. All he gets in response was crickets. Now, we don't know the details of this argument, but I can't help but wonder if Peter, James, and John, who had just gotten to witness the transfiguration, just got to hang out with Jesus on top of the mountain, might not have gotten down back with the other nine guys that failed to cast out the demon, and they started to talk about, hey, who do you think is going to be the greatest of us all? Well, regardless, regardless, um, their silence after he asked seemed to indicate that Jesus, that they knew that Jesus wouldn't be thrilled with their road trip conversation. And their pride caused their conversation in the first place, and now their pride causes their silence. In his book, Mere Christianity, author C.S. Lewis writes this. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And it almost feels like we can't help but play this comparison game. We all have some desire to be great. Maybe I want to be the greatest athlete on my team, or maybe I want to be the most proficient person at my workplace, or maybe I want to just be the favorite brother or sister in my family. Like we all have something in us that compares to one another. How often do sports channels talk about the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. I mean, for years we've discussed who's the best basketball player of all time. Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James? Larry Bird, I vote Magic Johnson, Lakers, but so whole nother. But right, like we always are having these things go on in our mind where we want to figure out who's the greatest of all time and we want to be greater than other people. So in scene two, we see how pride postures for prominence. When I have pride, I posture myself for prominence, meaning I want to feel more important. I want you to think more highly of me. And it's not wrong for Christ followers to be driven or ambitious or committed to excellence. Hear me on this. It's not. After all, in the Bible, we read, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord. But when our ambition shoves aside love and obedience and service, that ambition does become sin. But notice how the disciples, one thing I love about this misunderstanding is Jesus uses the misunderstanding and the pride of the disciples to teach them something. It's an opportunity to correct. And reality is that most of the people we come into contact with, they misunderstand Jesus and misunderstand his teaching. And when someone doesn't understand, it can be a golden opportunity for us to tell them about the real Jesus that we've been learning so much about. So Jesus uses this argument and their pride to show them a better way, his way. In verse 35, it starts sitting down. Now in Old Testament or in New Testament times, a rabbi would have followers or disciples and Jesus had his followers. And anytime a rabbi was about to preach, they would take a seat and the disciples or their followers would gather around. So this phrase sitting down almost indicates a transition in the activity there. Before, he just asked a question, but now he's about to teach them something. So Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Anyone who wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. Jesus flips the script. He says instead of using people, Jesus tells us to serve people. Instead of being selfish, he says to be selfless. Instead of posturing for prominence, 
for trying to be more important, to gain wealth or be more famous. Jesus tells them that like him, to be great, you must be to take on the posture of a servant. Now regarding pride and greatness, there is good news and bad news. And the bad news is that at some level and in some ways we all struggle with pride. We all have areas in our lives where we want to be greater than someone else, where we want to impress somebody. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which, are more, which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Hmm. You know, we live in a comparison trap. Uh, the reality is that we were designed by God to be selfless people. But because of our sinful nature, we are inclined to be selfish. It's impossible, as Seth has said on several occasions, to walk into a room without sizing up other people to figure out where we land on the pecking order. Like, we're just wired that way. I mean, I know I'm, pro I'm prone to compare myself to other preachers, hoping you like me as much or more than you like Seth or Kent or Dale or whomever. I'm prone to compare my kids to other kids, how they're doing on their team or in school or in church, the jobs that they have. I'm prone to worry about what you think about me. Uh, for those of you that have ever gone to a class reunion, I'm a little ashamed of the comparisons. Who's got what job? How well did they marry? What have their kids accomplished? Hoping my ex-girlfriend's husband's a little more homely than I am. Just keep it real. Hopefully they're not as successful either, right? You know, so pride, pride is the one sin that when pointed out, it fights against itself. It's self-defeating because the prideful response is, I don't deal with pride. Or more bluntly, I don't need to deal with my pride. In either case, though, though it's my problem, I'm basically saying other people just need to deal with it. And if I don't deal with my pride, then my pride becomes other people's problems. So just deal with it. Now, you know, maybe our desires are even what you might consider a holy desire. I want to be a greater Christian, to serve more often, to be a better prayer warrior, a bigger giver, a more bold evangelist, which are all good aspirations, but not when we're comparing ourselves to others. When we're comparing ourselves to others, then it becomes sinful. But the struggle the struggle is that the world, or more specifically the deceiver, Satan says to you, do everything out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. He says, value others below yourselves and look to your own interests while ignoring the interests of others. That's frequently the message that we're being taught by our culture. And it's a present and permeating temptation for each of us. We live in a me-focused society. But here's what the Apostle Paul writes in, in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest 
of the others. Now, the good news is that every one of us can be great in the kingdom of Jesus. Every one of us has the ability, regardless of our age, regardless of our physical or financial status, regardless of our intelligence, regardless of our Bible knowledge, we can be the servant of all. And reflectively, as I think about this church body, there are so many of you that serve in amazing ways. Like, I really do believe that we're doing this well at a lot of levels. So many of you give so much of your time, talents, treasures, and hearts just to bless others, and I'm grateful for that. But the disciples, the disciples were going to be the leaders of the church, and Jesus was calling them to be servant leaders, to be loving leaders with servant hearts. And so Jesus decides, I'm going to do, give these guys an object lesson. And so in the object lesson in verse 36, it says that he took a little child. So there must have been a toddler that was nearby while he's visiting with these guys. And then what does it say he does? It says that he, taking the child in his arms, I mean, he was like cuddling this child, probably holding him against his chest, I think, how cool would it have been to be that child, right? We kind of somewhat all dream of this at some point in our lives, to be held in the arms of Jesus. So he's got this child. He's holding him in his arms. And then he says these words, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's almost a little bit confusing what that last sentence means there. What he's saying is, whoever welcomes one of these little children... In my name, in the name of Jesus, welcomes me, welcomes Jesus. And whoever welcomes me, Jesus, does not just welcome me, but welcomes the Father, welcomes the one who sent me, is what he's saying. But why did he choose a child? Why did he pick a child for this object lesson? You know, our pride makes us want to serve or impress those that can help us advance in this life, that can help us climb the corporate ladder, seem more important. And a child couldn't give these guys anything. The child had no power, no status, few rights. A child could not increase their importance or wealth. I mean, you think about being a young parent. You feed a child. You shelter a child. You clothe a child. You clean a child. You care for a child. You pray for a child. You love a child. You give up sleep for a child. You spend money on your child. You worry about your child. When a child is young, they don't give you status, they don't give you money, they don't help around the house, they just receive. And that's not to say we don't experience incredible love and joy through our kids. But what Jesus is saying is that if you want to be great, you should be the servant of all. You should serve those who can't give back to you or may never give back to you. You know, as I think about the different types of people that serve, I think of the CNA worker in an assisted living facility. Maybe she's taking care of somebody on hospice, and that person will never be able to give anything back to her or him. But they serve by speaking encouraging words, by cleaning soiled bedding, by bathing that person, more than likely never to gain anything back. I think of the teacher coming alongside second graders, equipping them with skills that will be used for a lifetime, encouraging them that they can do this and they can grow and get better. I think of a cook at the homeless shelter just serving a practical need as somebody's hungry and coming in for food. I think of the co-worker who, who listens to one of their peers, the life struggles of a peer, and offers the gift of empathy and encouragement 
not expecting anything in return. I think of the teacher or para who works with special needs students who may not even be able to utter the words thank you, and yet they serve them. I think about the folks that serve in our Boaz bike ministry, turning wrenches to repair used bikes to give away uh, to under-resourced families, to people that they may never know or meet. I think of a life group making meals for someone who has recently been widowed or is battling a difficult medical situation or perhaps just recently had a baby. I think of one of you walking across our foyer to engage with and welcome somebody that you've never met. And we serve not to get anything, but simply to help people know that they are loved and to provide for practical needs and to share the love of Jesus not with the hope of getting anything in return. However, most of us do experience great joy through these types of acts of service. So do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Simply serve humbly with the love of Jesus. Just serve humbly with the love of Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to be great, be servant of all. Now we enter scene three, and it's the final scene. And I almost get the impression, I don't know if this is true, I don't know if these things happen back to back or not, but it feels a little bit like John is trying to change the subject, like he's trying to divert the attention from these guys' failure with the argument about who's going to be the greatest by pointing out somebody else's faults. And so John says, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop. Why? Because he wasn't one of us. He's not on our team. Like, he's not following you. You know, you get the sense that John makes this comment, not because he thinks the guy's wrong, but because he wants to hold on to the glory, because he wants to be the important one, because he wants their group to just be their group and nobody else to be able to do anything that would be important. And it's interesting to think that uh, just 20 verses earlier, the disciples were unable to cast out a demon and now he picks on something that they were unable to do that somebody else who's not even with them is doing in Jesus' name. That's the thing he wants to point his finger at. Here's what we learn in, in this scene. Pride provokes partiality. Pride provokes partiality. You know, it causes division. It causes unfair favoritism. It causes us to kind of want to define ourselves differently than somebody else. And, and here's the problem that might on occasion hit close to home. We do the same thing when we compare our churches or our ministries. When we say, well, they don't worship like we do, or they don't teach the Bible like we teach the Bible, or we complain about how they're reaching certain people that maybe, you know, or, or maybe it's the way they're using to reach people. And Jesus is just going, you doughheads, you know, <laughs> It's not about your church. It's not about your, your uh, denomination. It's about my kingdom. It's about my kingdom. And so, Jesus responds in verse 39. He says this to John. He says, do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me for whoever is not against us is for us so in essence he's saying you know if, if if somebody does a miracle in my name and my power jesus power heals that person 
they must actually be doing it in the name of Jesus. So they can't flip the script just right thereafter and say something bad about him. But he's also saying, for whoever is not against us is for us. So like if they're for Jesus, they're on our team, is what he's saying. Now here's the deal. I hope that Salem, that this body of believers, this church family would be known for cheering on other Christ-following churches. And that we would celebrate when they have success and that we would speak well of them and that we would recognize God doing incredible things, not just through our church family, but other church families throughout this valley. You know, we have Triumph and Ignite and Calvary and Church of Christ all on 30th Avenue South here within a mile or so of us. We should be celebrating full parking lots at every place, celebrating ministry initiatives that are making a kingdom impact. That's my hope corporately, that whoever is not against us is for us and that we would be a people that cheers on bodies of believers that are faithfully spreading his word and his love and seeing others come to know Christ through their ministry. And my hope individually is that we would become the type of people that we would be secure in who Christ made us to be. The gifts that he's given us, the talents that he's given us, the passions that he's given us, the places that he has put us in the workplace or in school or wherever we might be, and that we would embrace that and be grateful, and we would celebrate what he's doing in and through us, but that we would also celebrate what he is doing in and through others with true joy. Like we get in trouble like when we look at just around the room and would you get jealous of what somebody else is doing? You know, because they're making an impact. Maybe they're an incredible Bible teacher. Maybe they uh, have this uh, great gift of hospitality. Maybe they're an incredible servant. And God says, I don't want you to worry about what they're doing. You just celebrate the good things that they're doing. And you do what I'm calling you to do. You use your gifts and your tools because he has uniquely made each one of you in the image of God exactly the way he wants you to be. He wants you to use you just as you are. Well, then the passage wraps up with another object lesson. Verse 41, Jesus says this to the guys. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. He chooses such a simple act of service, giving someone a cup of water in his name. And he says it's worthy of reward. Like if you do this for somebody, it's worthy of reward. If you want to be great, Serve others humbly with the love of Jesus. And giving a cup of cold water to a needy person is the same as giving an offering to God. Years ago, my wife Vicki and I uh, were part of this marriage Bible study with a number of other couples in Salt Lake City. And I don't remember much of the study, but there was one lesson that they had given. And this was on the old VHS recording date. You know, this was a long time ago. But the couple that was doing the training Uh, They said this, every time you go to get, like if you're at home and you're sitting on the couch watching TV and one of you gets up to go get a cup of water, ask your spouse if they would like a cup of water too and bring them a cup of water. And there was something that it just was like, just have a servant's mind and a servant's heart. And we've kind of reminded each other of that on occasion over the years, but we've tried to practice that. And what that has done for us is when I ask that question, can I bring you a cup of water? I mean, I, I'm building the relationship. She feels loved. She feels known. And, and I get joy out of serving her. 
And really, it's something as simple as a cup of water can be a way that we start to just practicing serving each other and serving one another. Now, one of the cool things that stuck out to me after spending a couple weeks in this passage is in the last four verses of this passage, four times we read the phrase, in my name or in your name. Up on the screen, it says, in Jesus' name. So he's talking, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, anyone who welcomes one of these children in my name. Then John says, they were driving out demons in your name. And then Jesus says, anyone who does a miracle in my name can't in the next word speak against me. And then he uses this example. He says, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name. The deal is there is power and authority in the name of Jesus. And when we do something in his name, we're recognizing where that power comes from. We're casting aside pride and clinging on to Jesus. I mean, by acknowledging that it is through Jesus that this is happening, when I do it in his name, I'm doing it in order to glorify him. I'm doing it in order to put the attention on him. I'm doing it in order to hopefully share his love and his ways and to bless others in his name. And sometimes when we think about ministry, you know, I have to ask my question, am I doing this in my name or am I doing this in Jesus' name? The temptation is that I would do something to glorify my name or to glorify our church, right? But God says, and Jesus calls us, to do things in his name, like we want to bring the glory to him. We want people to know his love and his ways. But that temptation exists. But when we do something in Jesus' name, we're we're placing the power where it belongs. When we do ministry in the name of Jesus, we're seeking to do things according to his will for his glory and in his power. And the antidote to pride is recognizing who is most important and where the power and love comes from, and that's from Jesus. And notice that Jesus, I mentioned this earlier, Jesus never gave up on his disciples. Like regardless of how many times their pride caused them to think poorly or get something wrong, he never gave up on them. And I want you to know this, the same is true for each one of you. It doesn't matter how many times you blow it. It doesn't matter how long it takes you to get it. Like, he doesn't give up on you. He loves you dearly, and he wants you to know him in his ways. And he is the most patient being that has ever existed. He continues to invite you to follow him. So what should we do with this? How do I proceed? I want to show you a verse. God resists or opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's actually from James uh, chapter 4, verse 6. The, the notation's not up there. But think about it. God says, proud, bad. Humbleness, good. Pride, bad. Humble, good. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I was trying to think of like, how do we grow in our humility? The first point up there is humility comes from recognizing the power and sovereignty of God. There was a time in the Old Testament when the Israelites were just about to go into the promised land after years of wandering in the desert. And God said to the Israelites, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce the wealth. 
And I've shared that verse with my kids at times when they're doing really well in baseball or hockey or something. It is so important that we remember who it is that gave us the talent, who it is that gives us breath of life, who it is that gives us the passion and the ability and the cognitive ability to do things. We recognize that it's God and His sovereignty and His power and humility grows out of that. You know, there's two gals that are part of our congregation that I have frequent uh, interactions with. And there's one of them. Every time I ask her, I say, how are you doing? She'll respond, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And what I think she means by that is that I'm loved and I'm guided and I'm cared for by Jesus. And it's just her way of constantly acknowledging that I'm in God's hands. And there's another gal, every time I say something like, hey, I'll see you Sunday, she'll say, Lord willing. And I don't think she doesn't mean it's snarky, like Lord willing. And she's just saying, you know, God's in control. He's sovereign. And so those are ways that we just recognize in the power and the sovereignty of God. The next point I want to share is humble people are listeners and learners. You know, in scene one, we said that pride distorts perception. My pride prevents me from hearing clearly. My pride causes me to draw out conclusions that may or may not be true. But humble people are good listeners and learners. Like we are all works in progress. It doesn't matter how long we've been following Jesus. Like he's still got work to do in our lives. And if you'll take a posture of curiosity and a posture of like, I don't have it all figured out and I've still got some work to do, that'll grow the humbleness in you. The third one is humble people seek to serve and not to be served. In scene two, we said pride postures for prominence. And yet that's the antithesis of what Jesus' message was. He said the first will be last and the last will be first. He said at one point, for the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to, to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we think about uh, right before he's about to go to his death, right after the Last Supper, like he gets on his knees and washes his disciples' feet, like he humbled himself in so many ways, and he models that for each and every one of us. He says, we need to be a people that seek to serve and not to be served. It doesn't mean there's not a time and place where it's okay to be served, but that our hearts and minds would be inclined to wanting to serve others. And the, the fourth one, humble people promote unity and cheer on others. In scene three, I said that pride provokes partiality. But Jesus said, anyone who is not against us is for us. And Paul said, look to the interest of others. You know, I really do hope that we would be not, not just a church community, but a people that would be inclined to cheer on others, that we would promote unity within this church body, but then at the larger level, that we would promote unity within the capital C Church of Christ, both locally and globally. And then the fifth one is humble people display and spread God's love. Humble people display and spread God's love. Uh, Jesus was pressed one day on what the greatest commandment of all was, and he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. He said, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And there's this essence, like he calls us to be his loving people on the face of planet earth. We're the ones that get to show his love and share his love and point others to him. But that happens best out of our own filling of his love. Like it's, it's what 
God fills us up with receiving how much He cares for us, receiving who He says we are, receiving His redemption and His love. And when we're constantly being filled up by His love, our love flows out to others. And so humble people then display and spread God's love. I want to just wrap up with this final line by C.S. Lewis. It says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Oftentimes, I think we think of humility as beating up on ourselves and talking poorly of ourselves, which is actually, in some ways, a form of pride as well. Um, That's not what God wants. He wants us to know that we were created in His image, that we were gifted by Him, that we are loved by Him, that we've been redeemed by Him. He wants us to know that. And then when we put all of that faith and trust in Him, we allow Him to work through us and to do things that we could never dream of doing as he, His Spirit inclines us to care for those who just need help, care for those in a tough situation, listen to those that are going through something tough. So my hope for each one of us is that we may grow in our ability to serve humbly with the love of Jesus, that we may find our way out of pride if we're caught by pride. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as I've mentioned just time and time again, God, I think pride is something, and C.S. Lewis said it, like, it is so hard for us to see this in ourselves. And so, God, I ask uh, that if anybody has an inkling, like, that this might really be a huge stumbling block for them, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help them to see themselves as you see them, uh, that you would take whatever might be skewing their view in an an inappropriate way and that you would give them clarity about who they are and how their pride has created fears in their lives or arrogance in their life or just created a barrier for your love and for healthy relationships because there are so many harmful things that happen out of it. Pray that you do a work in each one of our hearts and minds, God. And I know every one of us struggles with this at some level. So I pray, Lord, that we just be a people that can receive so well your love and that we would rest in you, that we would trust in you. We'd look at a passage like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, and know that it's you that are the source of all the gifts that we have. You are the source of the strength and hope that we have. And that as we trust you and rely on you, that our pride would melt away and be replaced with humility. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.